0: You're listening to OEA Grow, a member-led production of the Oregon Education Association and a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. In this very special bonus episode, we hear from educators in the Portland Association of Teachers who are on the cusp of the first ever strike in PAT history. An
1: increase in educator pay and instructional planning time would mean higher quality instruction for our students and teachers who are not burnt out and have the capacity to give their students that one-on-one support that they need. Okay so what
0: has this school year been like?
2: This school year has been a really tough school year. I, I have a really big Caseload of students, uh, and had been trying to split myself into many different places in the building uh, with not enough time to do it.
3: What does that mean for students?
2: It means that students receive less and less of the support they need because I need to serve so many when I think of safe and equitable schools, I think of schools with culturally, competent, uh, culturally relevant curriculum. I think of small class sizes. I think of schools that are free of molds and rats, building temperatures that folks between 70 degrees and just 70 degrees, not uh, 50 degrees in the winter and 90 to 100 degrees in the summer. Um, I think of enough teachers and supports to provide our students with a need.
0: The hard part about being a special ed teacher is like one of the hard things is like getting emails from the district saying that they're pulling another support and that I have to do another job. Um, I'm in charge of writing IEPs, I'm in charge of testing, I'm in charge of instruction. I'm in charge of monitoring every single goal I have on my caseload, which can be over 100 goals, easy, easy, over 100 goals every single quarter. And to get an email like we just did that the district is changing how they are providing behavior supports is really demoralizing because the district is like, well, you can use your school psychs. I'm like, my school psych is drowning in evaluations,
4: the vast majority of their teachers are putting in a ton of energy and time and effort to do what's best for the kids, Um, but those teachers are leaving. We've had a lot of good teachers leave because they're exhausted and burnt out, because they want to do what's best for kids, and they know they can't continue to do that sustainably. I think one of the most important things about what we as a union are fighting for, um, for the benefit of our students, is we're asking for manageable caseloads and classroom sizes and planning time so that we can do the work necessary to give our students the quality and equitable education that they deserve. The time is now. The money is here now. Our students can't wait. Our students deserve high quality public education and our teachers deserve the funding and support necessary to give students that.
3: As a behavior analyst, I travel from school to school. I I work with about 10 different schools. Uh, It's been challenging. Uh, we're looking at shortages on staff, whether it be paraprofessionals, teachers, school psychiatrists, uh, psychologists, psychologists. Uh, we're missing it across the board and this are for our most impacted students our students that have need the most support um, are unfortunately being shorted that support. So it's been really heartbreaking to see. It, it doesn't matter what school you're in, it doesn't matter the socioeconomic, situation or location. Everybody has the support they need in order to succeed in school. And that should be for every student, every school, every time, every day. And we're not seeing that right now. And it's a tragedy. It's tragic that we're letting our
0: most in-need students down at this time when they need us the most. Working with students who are medically fragile, they're And working with students who are in a self-contained classroom they've never had enough staff or enough services to provide all their needs it's like constantly like a safety issue within our building Um, as well as like me as the teacher not getting planning time or time to do my IEPs because I don't want to leave my my students without you know proper supports for them to be safe at school Um, and I've had like a constant rotation of paraeducators in my classroom and typically am understaffed probably at all times and one of those reasons is because you know our paraeducators aren't paid enough to do the job that our district management is requiring them to do Um, and like a lot of them have second jobs or a lot of them are um, just barely making money to pay the rent. And so there aren't a lot of qualified people who are getting into those positions. So it's like a con- constant rotating door, which is, you know, bad for our students. And it's not their fault, it's, you know, management's decisions on not paying them enough money.
1: My name is Nadia, and I have four PPS students uh, kindergarten, sixth grade, seventh grade, and a ninth grader. And they've been in school for 11 plus years now, starting even in Head Start. And what I have noticed going through maybe four schools at this point in PPS is that there has always been a need for more, more teachers, more mental health supports, more electives like music, PE. And as a parent, it has been hard to start each school year with hope, knowing that a lot of what my children deserve, they won't won't be able to have those opportunities and neither will their classmates. So I'm always going to make sure that I support teachers because teachers are the ones who take care of my four babies every day.
5: What I really see as a major issue is students that need supports are not um, able to access them. And so our special ed um, educators are way overloaded and don't have the time or the resources to be able to um, give the kind of supports that students need throughout the day. So not just when they come into the class, their classroom and give them academic support, but a lot of the social emotional support um, is where I see the biggest need. So we have students who are causing room clears, who are having meltdowns, who are running, trying to leave the building. What we see is then the special educator is taken from her classroom to sort of do triage as well as the principal and the counselor. So um, instead of these students having built into their day the support that they need throughout the day. It just seems like putting out fires constantly. Um, And that that isn't like helping these students gain the skills that they need to regulate. It's not helping um, all the students that aren't getting served because the adults are taken away from their other uh, other aspects of their job. And I've just seen this year after year after year after year.
6: I love third grade. It's one of the best ages to work with. this year, I've just noticed, and since COVID, I've noticed, in general, an increase in trauma-related needs for my students. And this year, no exception to that, it's definitely the most amount of supports that I've felt as a teacher. Um, just a lot, um, there's a lot that, that, that my students need that they're not receiving, that uh, I would love to see with, with having more you know whether I be paraeducators or special education services mental health specialists um, in the school I think would just do a lot to serve my students better and would help me as well as an as a teacher to you know teach the curriculum and be able to focus on that um, more than I can right now with a lot of the the needs that my students have you know they can't get to the, some of the academic stuff when their other needs are not being met.
7: I'm also worried about the safety um, in our classrooms because with these larger sizes, the students' needs aren't being met and um, safety is a concern, especially since we don't have enough funding for our paraeducators and supports for our special ed um, staff um, and our students there. Um, I'm as a teacher myself I had an incident happen last year where I was punched by um, a student who uh, was nonverbal needed that extra support we had a really disruptive day and um, it wasn't on him it was on the situation at hand Um, unfortunately I'm still working through post-concussive issues and Um, You know, for me, my main thing as an educator is to be there for my kids, and um, it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's a real challenge.
8: Hi, my name is Tiffany Koyama Lane. My pronouns are she, her. I teach third grade in Southeast Portland, and I have... For the past couple of years, been helping as the lead external organizer. So was the point person for helping organize connections with other unions and PTAs and folks, not internally, not necessarily members, but externally. And since June, we have pivoted and combined internal external organizing to focus on our CAT team, our contract action team. That's what I've been helping with, and I'm um, a picket captain, zone zone captain, with you two.
9: Yeah, my name's Chris Schweitzer. I'm a chemistry teacher at Roosevelt High School in the St. John's neighborhood of Portland. I've been an organizer with PAT for the last three years, and for the last two, I've been the head building rep at my site, and my current role in our Strike buildup is a zone captain, so I support schools throughout the southeast, the northeast, and the north in our uh, zone five.
5: My name is Rachel Haynes. I am a fifth grade teacher at Glencoe Elementary. My pronouns are she, her. And I have done a lot of different... Roles. I've had a a lot of different roles at PAT in the last 10 years, um, from building rep to uh, zone uh, organizer during our last strike buildup, um, executive board, been on some committees, and now I'm mostly doing um, communications, and I'm my building cat um, captain and um, all around what can I do at PAT? I want to help kind of person. I'm going to give a little background to our particular issues with school funding in Oregon. So in the nineties, anti-tax activists successfully passed ballot measures that transformed public school funding, making it dependent on state general revenues. So it was controlled by the legislature rather than locally. And then in 1990, Measure 5 was passed, which capped property taxes that were dedicated for school funding. In 96, Measure 25 passed, which required a supermajority for any new revenue, which is why it's so difficult to change tax laws here in Oregon. Then in 1997, Measure 50 passed, which reduced property taxes and limited their future growth. In the first 16 years of Measure 5 and Measure 50, Local revenues were reduced by $41 billion. This, in turn, dramatically increased dependency for school funding on the state general fund. The flip side of this is that all other programs and services dependent on the general fund were also reduced. So there's our revenue problem in a nutshell. Now, in 1999, the state created the Quality Education Model, or QEM, and the QEM looked at latest research and data in order to recommend practices and the level of funding required to meet Oregon's educational goals. Shortly after, in 2000, an Oregon state constitutional amendment was passed that requires the state to fund public education. It also requires an annual report detailing whether or not the legislature has funded the QEM. Spoiler alert, it never has. The funding gap has been between 24% to 38% every year since the QEM was created. So Oregon has underfunded education for over 30 years, and at the same time, funding for our social safety net has shrunk. We all know that poverty, housing insecurity, homelessness, trauma, substance abuse, and mental health issues impact students and their ability to learn and stay in school. These issues are becoming more and more common, this convergence of crises has put an immense strain on our educational system. But rather than investing in more teachers, mental health supports, and class size caps, PPS spends money on middle management and contracts with for-profit corporations that offer reforms to purportedly improve outcomes. People need to understand that the narrative that teachers and schools are failing props up a billion-dollar industry. Public dollars are given to private entities, which diverts money away from direct services to kids. Pair that with the crisis of austerity. PPS continually says they can't afford to pay all of their employees a living wage or lower class sizes. But they can give senior management raises and pay consultants to look at the results of years of disinvestment and blame teachers rather than investing in direct support to students. Educators have been expected to do more with less for over 30 years. We've placed more and more on educators' shoulders with no relief in sight. At the last few years of the pandemic and further strain on the social safety net, and that brings us to this moment in time, educators have had enough.
9: With all that context, Tiffany, can you tell us why you're ready to strike?
8: Sure. My big why is class sizes. That's the one that I've been talking about a lot. There's such a huge difference. So Tiffany teach third grade at Sunnyside Environmental School. When I have 21 third graders, it's so much different from a year when I have 31 third graders. When I have 31... There's physically not enough space in this old building, in the old classroom that I'm in. Um, I'm squeezing kids in corners next to a bookshelf to make a little desk space. Kids are using the heater as a desk space. There are just too many bodies in the room. It also is so detrimental to the kids because they each get a little bit less of me and also their caregivers. But actually over the last week, I've been thinking a lot about mice because my students found one and brought me over to one at school the other day, a little dead one. And so as many people might know, we are fighting for also better working conditions, which also are student learning conditions. So working in a classroom that's no colder than 60 degrees, hotter than 80 degrees, mice and mold-free classrooms. Yeah, it's been interesting because I have had some parents that really had no idea what is going on in terms of the mice, the mold, the temperatures. Um, I had a parent come to some of us teachers and was like, whoa, am I to believe that... There's really mice and mold in the classrooms in Portland Public Schools. It's like, yeah, this is this is really a thing. You can ask almost any building. And those, uh, do you all have this the tiles on the ceiling that fall down? Yeah. Yes. see Rachel nodding her head. Yeah. How about you, Chris? What's your why?
9: Yeah, so um for me, I'm a newer educator. I've made it to my 5th year in the profession. Uh the first year, my first full-time year of teaching um as an employee of PPS was the year we shut down with COVID. And you know, I had big dreams going into the profession of being this amazing teacher and you know, I had such a great experience in grad school and student teaching, and I just thought I could make such a big impact on the world. And kind of the reality I came to um, at my school was that the Portland Public Schools District had spent millions of dollars to remodel this building, Roosevelt High School. Um, It was the first bond measure remodel high school in our city. And uh, they had done a really bad job. And, uh, you know, I got there and teachers were sharing all these classrooms and I'm in all these different classrooms, moving science materials around on a cart. And, you know, there just wasn't time to like really meet my students needs. Um, you know, the neighborhood I live in, there's a lot of gun violence, there's a lot of trauma, a lot of poverty. And I really want to take the time to meet my students needs, give them the personal attention they deserve, the kind of feedback, uh, home communication. And just with the level of like, you know, with sharing classrooms, with the amount of bureaucratic hurdles we have to clear every day, which my colleagues who've been in the profession longer tell me did not used to exist. Um, it's just really hard and the lack of support from administrators. So, you know, I was just really disheartened um, my first couple years of teaching. And uh, yeah, I've just found the only way that things have improved for me is to really try to to fight back with my colleagues collectively. And that's kind of my why is it's the only thing I've seen that actually makes it better. Um, yeah. What about you, Rachel? What's your why for why you're ready to strike?
5: Um, you know, there's so many things, but, uh, probably the first one I can think of is special education. I started my career as a special education teacher, um, 15 years ago. And I only lasted three years um, because it was so challenging and difficult, and so much paperwork and meetings, and then um, very little support for what we do in the classroom, working with students. And um, I've just found that, you know, it's just getting sort of worse and worse in terms of like support for special educators. Um, and being able to meet the needs of their students, and I feel like the district is just doing this haphazard um, inclusion model, but it's not true inclusion, um, which requires supports for the students, so they're not just sort of thrown in the deep end in the cl- in the classroom without any of the supports that they need and that are they're legally. Um, uh, supposed to get on their um individualized education plan so at our school we have had a substitute part-time um special education teacher uh and the position has been filled by people who don't have a special education background cannot do um the uh the sort of paperwork side of things, um, can't be an official case manager. And so these kids are, are really not getting the services that they're supposed to. And we're going on year two of that. And so I teach fifth grade. These are fifth graders in my class and, and, um, the other fifth grade class. And that cohort, um, has a lot of, uh, a lot of need for more support and they went from three classrooms of around twenty to two classrooms of thirty and thirty-one, um, and I, I just I wish people could understand how challenging it is to have such a broad depth of um, need, you know, anything from academic support, behavioral support, support for trauma and um, mental health issues, and to be the only person in the room all day trying to support um, students that really, really need our help and not being able to do it and how demoralizing and frustrating it is to end each day feeling like, a failure because you can't meet all the needs in your class. It's just not humanly possible, and so that's something I've grappled with before in the past, and I'm really grappling with this year. Um, and I just see so much um, trauma and and need in our schools, and it's just, you know, the the seems like the response from people in management is like, have you tried a check-in, check-out sheet? <laughs> you know, I mean, just like really basic things that might work for a child that's not in like a heightened state of trauma every second of the day. You know, it's like we need real support and and don't act like we're not doing everything we can to try to help these kids and give them a like a safe place to be and supported at school. Um, So that's a huge thing, but also just building issues. We've had so we've, we had a leaky roof for over 20 years. So you're telling me that like all the water damage in all the walls and ceilings all over our building, that there's no mold. So what do they do? They fix our roof and they put in new ceiling tiles Where's the remediation, you know, of the mold, um, and just the basic disrepair of our buildings. What I just think about what message that sends to kids about their value and importance. Um, and, you know, there's all kinds of, uh, you know, messages in the surroundings that kids are in. And that message is really terrible. Okay, so we've shared about some um, of our personal why, which relates a lot to our platform. Um, It includes things like building conditions and class size um, and time to prepare. Tiffany, would you share a little bit more about um, our platform and also about bargaining for the common good?
8: Absolutely. I'm really passionate about our platform because we have used this bargaining strategy, bargaining for the common good. Where members and other unions and community members, parents, we're all demanding this change together and it's change that benefits not just educators and what you might think of when you think of a teacher's bargaining for a contract, thinking just about wages, but we're really thinking about students and the community as a whole, we... Started about a year ago holding community listening sessions where we listen to other union members from other important unions that we coalition build with and also caregivers to hear what are things that they love about their school now and what are some things they'd like to see changed. And so our, our platform came out of that work and there are things on there that I've never seen before like the smaller class sizes and caseloads, safe and healthy schools, talking about the maintaining classroom temperatures that are above 60 degrees, below 90 degrees, racial equity and restorative justice, which um, you can actually go onto the website, pdxteachers.org backslash bargaining vision or backslash resources, and you can look at the full platform. So each of these... Different pieces have a bunch of bullet points. Um, The racial equity and restorative justice, for example, one of the bullet points is culturally relevant curricula developed collaboratively with educators, um, expanded early learning and preschool programs, more teaching, less testing, additional special education services like you were talking about, Rachel, expanded mental health services. Housing assistance for at-risk families. So, an example is having a resilience fund that can be used to help families in crisis. Um, having immu- emergency services for families facing eviction. Competitive salaries and benefits so PPS can so our school district PPS can recruit and retain great teachers and real community connections and community voice. So some ways to make that happen are increased transparency and community involvement in the school budgeting process and also district-wide parent-teacher home visit programs in line with national standards. Let's see, anything that either of you want to add on to that?
5: I'll just jump in for a second about the culturally relevant curricula um, we've had a real <clears throat> shift in focus from central office the last few years. Um, and it seems as though the focus is how are teachers really bad at their job and how can we get outside organizations to help them get better <laughs> their job <laughs> and pay these outside organizations a lot of money and adopt new curriculum, and we have adopted curriculum, um, language arts curriculum that is very uh, 1980s, I would say, um, in terms of uh, having diverse um, authors and perspectives and um, and focus. Um, I mean, I could talk for a whole hour about how uh, poorly crafted some of this curriculum is. And the message has been, do it exactly as written. Um, And so I think that this piece about treating educators as professionals who have gotten degrees and studied and know what they're doing to be treated as professionals, to be treated with some degree of trust, Um, And I feel like that has been lacking for the past few years, and I definitely think that that has um, uh, had an impact on how people are feeling and their willingness to go out on strike as this sort of um, feeling disrespected and um, deprofessionalized. Uh, So, Chris, could you... Talk a little bit about how do we how do we win all this? How do we get this um, amazing contract and incorporate the things from this platform?
9: I've been, you know, privileged enough to early in my career get some training on organizing from Jane McAlevey and some other uh, labor leaders, and it really opened my eyes to like what that disrespect does to people, you know, what you were talking about of having this canned curriculum and just people don't feel like they have a voice in their day-to-day life. I mean, we spend most of our time at work and for teachers, we bring our work home with us and we're doing, you know, we're working all the time. And when you don't feel like you have respect or voice or agency, um, it really takes a toll on, on your mental health and you get dejected. And, you know, we end up people that are strong personalities that have a lot of self-respect, you know, they either push through or they, or they maybe choose another profession. And unfortunately we've lost a lot of really good people from this profession. Um, And kind of some of the methods I got, and then I know a lot of um, our PAT organizers have learned over the last couple of years, helped me kind of start to push back on that. And a lot of that was really talking about this stuff with other teachers, um, other educators, counselors, Um, all of our PAT staff about what do we, you know, what do we do about this? And then how do we do it? Um, So really for me, it was in my building. I became an internal organizer during COVID and a lot of it was around just talking to my colleagues and saying, Hey, what is your issue? What do you really care about? And so many of the things I heard from people wasn't just pay. It was these issues about respect, professional autonomy, um, safe buildings, you know, safety, our students, mental health, student supports, staffing for SPED, um, and just kind of doing that organizing, like organizing happy hours. Uh, I organized, you know, zone school and zone kind of cookouts, doing all that stuff really started to build solidarity. And, uh, that really helped, um, with us like starting to come together as a staff. Uh, we also had s- some punitive things done to us by the district and that process of organizing. And, you know, I feel like it kind of beat people down a little bit, but in the long run, it made us stronger. Uh, and I'm really seeing that now across the district as they try to break our strike. Um, but really so much of what we built over the last year plus has really been about one-on-one conversations and, talking to every single educator about what matters to them and what they're willing to fight for Um, instead of just saying, hey, you have to go do show up to this place and do this thing because your leadership told you to. It was really like what actually matters to you? What are you you willing to fight for? Um, So in the building, that's probably been the biggest um, thing. But, you know, another huge piece of it is our community support and parent support and Tiffany's done a lot of work around that. So Tiffany, can you talk a little bit about the external organizing you've done?
8: So I mentioned the community listening sessions. We also started external organizing meetings where we encouraged each building to send at least one representative as an external organizer from their building. So someone who Is was is the point person for their building's PTA, their site's PTA, someone who community members in their community could come ask questions to. A neat thing about those meetings is they started off the first few months as those being members, union members at each site's coming to those meetings, and then they evolved into opening up so community members and parents, other caregivers could also join. And that brought a neat energy to those meetings. I noticed a shift in the members seeing people from the community showing up and saying, hey, we're here to support and we want to be involved and we want to support you. I know one example I have is at my own kids' school a little while back. It seemed that even the teachers were kind of shy or scared to show their union pride. We, in our district, wear blue on Tuesdays and kind of was sometimes seeing blue on Tuesdays, but not always, and it really was the parents and the kids that started wearing blue themselves and sending their kids in blue and then posting pictures of that, posting it to the school's PTA Facebook group. It seemed that that energy and that support almost gave way to the teachers in that building, feeling a little bit more confident to step into their power, knowing that they had families behind them at those external organizing meetings with those members, we built an escalation mountain. So we knew that we were um, at that point about to start bargaining and we're thinking about, okay, what are all the things that we need to do to with our with the community to build power if it needs, if it gets to the point where we do have to strike, which we do, that's where we're at right now. What are all the things that we have to do along the way? So they helped build that mountain and decide, okay, what are some of the things that are some smaller asks? Maybe um, just resharing some, some news on what's going on with bargaining, sharing that, um, what what teachers are fighting for, just doing that, sharing that on social media. Maybe the next step is um, flyering at your site. What the bargaining platform is, what teachers are asking for, maybe the ne- another step is, hey, can you get some family mem- families uh, community members to go to a different site? Maybe not their kids site, but another site in flyer. So so helping them see the progression. Um, we knew that we had to organize around communicating with our families and community members. So right away we started posting QR codes so people could sign up for an email listserv that had other supportive community members that we could email because our superintendent has a lot of power in just being able to click a button and have access to every parent's inbox and so we have pushed back by investing in social, our social media and also building up that email listserv of supporters. And another form of communication has been that flyering. I remember a year ago, it was kind of just me and one other person on who's on staff at PAT just going to some different sites in the morning and doing flyering. And now we have, at this point, um, community members that are doing all of that and they have set it up where once a week they know where to pick up the flyers. It's um, at a central location. It's actually not at our union hall. Um, they can get it there or they can get it at, at another location. And each school has a couple community members that have chosen that to be their school. And they go there once a week, either at pickup or drop off, and they do some firing and are literally putting papers in um, the hands of caregivers. Those listening sessions, community lessons, listening sessions were an important way for us to really write down and for it to be a a two way street too. So we could also hear, you know, what are, what's really important to these parents, these caregivers, what are the things that they really want to see changed and For external organizing, we also thought about different ways that people can show their support. So, you know, from wearing blue on Tuesdays to going to a coffee shop next door to the school and asking them if they could pledge their support in supporting what teachers are fighting for and what community members are fighting for, maybe put up a window cling in their window that says, you know, I, I support the Portland Association of Teachers, um, we've, we also have been working on just informing, educating, sharing truths about what's going on in classrooms. What are, are wise, you know, the truth is that parents, caregivers tend to love their kids, teachers. And so really helping them see, you know, teacher Tiffany meet like I am the union. It's not this separate thing. It's made up of all of all of us teachers. So we started going to PTA meetings and just, um, offering to do a little 10 minute presentation about what we're fighting for, telling some personal stories. And I went to some different schools too. If there were teachers that were a little nervous about speaking to their PTA, I told them that I would go with them or I help some of them make a little slideshow. So we had like a, a basic one that they could edit and personalize a little bit and have some time to host a bit of a and a with the school's PTA. And I think that was important that to start doing that, you know, a year before we're even actually really seriously talking about a strike. So we have in so many sites, so many buildings, this, um, base built up of the PTA knows they can come to us get, and ask questions and, um, going to their meetings is not just like a random one-off, but is something that we've been doing ongoing. Many members have tabled at school-wide social events and just had a table that had information about, you know, outside of work hours, what's what's going on for teachers? What are teachers fighting for? Do you have any questions? Do you want, um, do you want a sign to put up in your window that says that you support teachers? And then we also another important thing has been to infuse joy and make sure that we're centering that in community building. So going to some different community summer events and tabling, and also just just being a presence and doing face paint. And uh, there was a really neat art build that happened last month that um, brought in a lot of different artists and we got to build community and make signs and banners in preparation for the strike. And in addition, I just think the energy and the joy that it brought was really important. I think this is a good time. Rachel, do you want to talk a little, bit, a little bit about how we actually got the amazing 99%? yes strike vote, 99% of our members voting yes to strike?
5: Actually, let's have Chris talk about that. But I will uh, say just briefly that um, in my years at working um, with PPS, I found that, you know, parents are very interested, not only in what's going on in their kids classroom and with their kids education, they're in, they're truly interested in learning about, um, how the whole system works and how decisions are made and where funding is going. And so I feel like over the years I've, I've always just, you know, answered questions and talked about, um, education issues with parents when they want to talk about it with me. And I think that you know, once I hit this point where I was like, this is so bad. <laughs> the way things are going are so troublesome and it just seems to be getting worse every year. Once I realized that like fighting for for better schools for our students and better working conditions for us, like I had nothing to lose. It, it feels like things can continue to get worse for sure, but um, I can either fight for things to get better or I'll probably end up quitting. And so I've chosen not to quit, to stay in the fight. And the thing, one thing that makes a huge difference, not only like the, um, you know, my union brothers and sisters and like working together, but it really is making these connections with families and helping families see their... Um, strength and power that they have to organize and fight for changes in their school and in the public school system more broadly. And so, you know, one example is last year, um, we, the district kept saying that we were going to have fewer third graders um, than we actually currently were predicted to have because our class sizes were, um, you know, we had 65 second graders and they kept predicting that we were going to have fewer than that returning in the fall. Um, and so they cut one of our teaching positions for third grade and we kept bringing up to the district and then parents, we started talking together and organizing around the class size issue and parents kept speaking speaking to the board and saying, your numbers are wrong. We have 65 second graders. There's no reason to believe that these people aren't coming back and we are going to have huge class sizes. And they refused to replace that, um, cut position. We started the fall and out in the spring, they said, you know, if you have, if you hit the threshold of 33 kids in each third grade class, You'll get another teacher. And so the fall comes, there's 33 students in each class. And they say, no, no, you have to hit 34 to trigger. And then one class hits 34. And then they're like, well, it's not like a given. It's just like, if we can do it. And we can't. So you're going to have huge class sizes, even though we said you weren't. And you told us you were. And so... That's that, so we had a just a concerted effort, speakers and the school board meeting, letter writing campaign, you know, much of it organized by parents, most of it organized by parents um, and uh, eventually the pressure brought another hire on to replace that position. Meanwhile, we had lost a beloved teacher who was from the community whose children went to Glencoe. Um, who now had to go somewhere else. Um, So these decisions where they just sort of shuffle around numbers, they tend to forget in the central office that these are human beings who have deep connections and relationships to the families, the children, the other staff members. Like, we are a community. And when you pluck someone out and just plop them somewhere else, that's very difficult um, for everyone involved. And then the disruption of in the fall, taking two classes and then dividing them into three after they'd been together for a month in two classes. So that disruption also hugely impacted the children who now were being shuffled around into three classrooms. So all this to say is I feel like there is such a dehumanizing effect of um just looking at numbers without thinking about the humans involved. Um, and maybe that was a little bit of a tangent. Sorry. Um, but let's. Oh, I liked it. To Chris telling us how we got to 99% strike vote. Woo. Tell us, Chris.
9: Yeah. And I mean, gosh, I think about both of those things so much of like the dehumanization and then trying to find the joy. And I think that actually is how we, how we got there, you know, in a nutshell is people were just fed up and we found uh, educators in Portland, organizers found through organizing, they actually could regain some power and agency. Uh, And it it actually feels really good when you do it, but you know, there are some kind of nuts and bolts methods uh, we used here throughout this campaign that were different from what we've done before at PAT. And I'd say the biggest one, you know, I think people have always talked to each other and had one on one conversations. We've emphasized that a lot more. But what we've really started to do now are things called structure tests, which is where you are being a little more systematic in your collective action in a way that allows you to build that escalation mountain that Tiffany was talking about. So, You know, we started off uh, when all that that parent organizing was going on in the listening sessions within the schools, we moved bargaining surveys on paper to every site in the district. And I wasn't as heavily involved with the district wide organizing at that time, but I moved those surveys through my school. And, you know, we looked at the numbers. Those were hand counted. And, you know, I think it came back something like 70 percent of people filled it out, which is actually pretty good to start. And from there, we did a series of structure tests that were actually trackable. So after the surveys and the listening sessions allowed the bargaining team to really build up the platform that we were talking about in the beginning, finding the issues that really mattered to educators and families, uh, we put that campaign on a poster, a big, beautiful poster board, um, and each site got their own poster board. And we asked all members of our union at each site to sign it. And that really started to identify kind of like which sites were strong, which sites were weak um, and kind of allowed organizers to start dialing in on where do we need to focus in the spring? We kind of retooled our organizing structure into something called a contract action team, which has been really effective in other big cities around the country. Um, Not just in teacher unions, but lots of different kinds of unions um, to, to win together. Um, you know, kind of using the energy of that, that action around the campaign poster, and even seeing all those posters get put in the bargaining session around the district management and them having to look at how many educators they were kind of staring down as they bargained. Um, we formed our contract action team and we did a structure test in the spring, where we really honed in on having a one-on-one conversation with every educator in the district about what issue they're really willing to fight for. And that was the first time we really put out the word strike to all the educators. Cause it said, I will take action up to and including voting to authorize a strike. And that was a big test for a lot of people. And uh, it gave us a lot of information. You know, I had people, I talked, I had long conversations with them and they were like, this word scares me, you know? Um, and that just kind of let us know like where people were at. Like these are kind of like if you're a teacher listening to this, these were like our formative assessments uh, for that that final summative assessment, which is uh, going out on the picket line. Uh, and then this fall, you know, we saw we really increased our organizing capacity as we got kind of towards our timeline, uh, our legal timeline of being allowed to strike. And we did something called Strike School, where we brought organizers from around the district together on the coast to kind of get training, celebrate. And we moved strike pledge petitions after that. And we turned them around in a week, whereas before, you know, it was taking multiple weeks to get 70%. We're over 90% in four days. And I think from there, we kind of knew we were ready to go. And, you know, the strike vote kind of was easier at that point because we had done the work, you know, we had laid down all that, that organizing. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's how we got there. I'm curious what, what you two think, like what, what was that like for you? Just the last couple of weeks of leading up into the strike vote.
8: I know something that has felt really important has just been being in spaces with a lot of other members and feeling that, energy of we're in this together and we have we're taking we're taking this power back that's been taking taken away um, feeling empowered. Um, yeah, and I think I've I've been really blown away by the community support. I know. As we're getting ready to strike, we're doing things like asking some coffee shops and uh, donut shops if they'd be, if they want to help support by donating some coffee, or asking folks if they want to help bring an easy up tent to pop up if it's rainy, and just seeing the overwhelming support and excitement and buy-in from the community has felt um, really important. And this one thing that came up, I think it's connected, is I've had a realization that I I came to this union organizing work kind of by way of like of racial justice organizing work, um, which I'm finding is is pretty common, um, but I'm really seeing how so much of that is intertwined, especially as I look at our bargaining platform and I look at the values of our current leadership with our union. Um, It's just been neat to feel like both of those things are intertwined. Do you want to add anything, Rachel? It's been
5: so amazing and exciting um, to feel like we're so unified behind these like transformational changes that are going to really impact, you know, the district for potentially for decades. Um, and that we could be like winning things that could immediately, um, impact students' lives for the better. Um, giving them more attention, more support, um, and really thinking about, you know, again, like we want to center our students as, as human beings and individuals. They're not just numbers. They're not just a test score. It's not just a class of 30. It's like every child in that class is somebody that I care about and want to nurture their um their growth and their learning and so it feels very exciting that we could win things that could really help us do that and you know i think there people don't stay in this profession um because they're getting you know a great paycheck and a big pat on the head or whatever you know like we're in this because we really care about the, the, about public education as, a, as a, a something that's important in the in society. It has an important function um, as a place of like liberation and giving students the tools to be like independent, resourceful, you know, adults in the world that can actually pursue things that they care about and that are meaningful to them. So I'm just, you know, very excited about that.
8: I am wondering if you all have had your students talking about the strike. Has it been coming up?
9: Yeah. So at my school, uh, I'm a high school teacher and a lot of my students work um, and they have to provide for their families already. You know, I wish they could focus full time on their studies, but that's just the reality we live in. And, you know, they ask, they've been asking me more and more. They were asking me last year, but especially these last couple weeks, what this is all about. And, you know, I tell them I'm fighting for them and not just like for them to have better schools, but also just for them to have the power to do this in their own workplace. You know, it's really important that they see adults in their life, not just acting individualistically and looking out for themselves, but acting collectively And seeing, you know, organizing, what organizing can do um, and how transformative it can be. Um, You know, I want my kids to, I want them to have the protections of a union. And if they don't, I want them to organize one. You know, I want them to be able to say I've had enough and walk off the job if their employer is abusing their rights. So they've been really supportive. Um, Parents at the high school level have been super supportive, but it's been great I feel like we've been educating each other. You know, the kids tell me so much stuff about their jobs and what it's like, and some of them already have union jobs, and uh, we have great talks about that. And yeah, it's been it's been a great way to connect with kids.
8: I had a student, not in my class, but in the class next door, I don't know if I showed you all the these posters, just made these little flyers and started putting them up all around the school that say things like... Give teachers what they need. PPS should care about the teachers and kids. Care for kids, PPS. Give teachers what they need. It's been neat because I can tell kids are having conversations at home. A lot of my students are saying, I feel mad that you have to strike just to get what you need to be a, to teach us. Um, but I am also excited to see a lot of my kids on the strike line. It sounds like their families are really committed to helping their kids Experience this and have this be a learning opportunity. Is it coming up in your class at all, Rachel? Your fifth grade.
5: Yeah, um, this year? yeah. We had a, a community circle about it actually last week because I felt like it's weird to have this thing looming and not address it. Um, so I just asked them if they had questions or feelings about it, if they wanted to share, and they each, you know, went around and said if something if they wanted to. It was definitely like some kids had been talking at home because they were like, it is a underpaid position in society and people don't respect teachers. And I mean, it was like so clear that um, they were having conversations, either their parents are teachers or know teachers and understand um, kind of the predicament. And then there were kids that were like, I'm going to be... Uh, It'll be exciting to be out of school, but I'll miss hanging out with my friends. So a little bit more like a 10-year-old's, you know, take on it. But as far as families, I mean, we've had an amazing, amazing support from families. I mean, just so ready to do anything that we need, Um, offering to come out on the picket line, like you said, like bring tables and pop-ups and snacks and bring their, their kids and Uh, so that's been really, um, amazing. And I I feel like, you know, we've talked about this a lot, but parents know their kid's teacher and they know what conditions are like in the classroom, you know? So when PPS says things like, oh, our class sizes are so small and you have parents whose kid is in a class of 30 or thirty five kids or whatever, they know it's not true, you know? Yeah. And so <laughs> the spin only goes so far. You know, it's like people who have the experience and know what is really happening in their school, they can't be gaslit. Um or you know, they don't they they you can't the propaganda doesn't work on them. Um yeah. But uh, we should talk a little. I mean, I'm interested to know. Um, you talked about this a bit, Tiffany, about um, our leadership in PAT. And um, I just want to say that, like, I've been so impressed and um, thankful, grateful for their leadership, Angela and Jackie, um, and the executive board, all the elected leadership, really. But like, the tone, the kind of, um, you know, bold asks, and helping us understand our power, our power to to organize in our buildings, like Chris was talking about, our power to have conversations with other unions and and community members, and really this idea that strike is not a, a dirty word that should never be uttered. It's something that we should always be prepared to be able to use. We should always be strike ready. We should always be communicating and having the organizational structure to be able to make very bold demands on behalf of our students and on behalf of our profession. And, um, so I really appreciate that from the get-go of their, um, their term, they, they haven't been afraid to have that organizing focus and that, um, strike ready focus. And, um, And just the amount of sort of openness and trust and democratization of the union and really allowing members to feel their power and organize about specific things, that you know, to their building with the members in their building. Like everybody's issues aren't exactly the same. And we don't need to wait for someone to give us permission in the PAT office to try to improve the conditions in our building and with our co-workers and sort of trusting us that we know what's right for organizing in our own building and also how do we bring all these people together to sort of coalesce under these unified ideas and like giving people the voice to say what's important to them and that helping to shape the bargaining platform. Um, what do you what is your sort of take on um, on sort of just the way our union feels right now?
8: I second all of that um, Angela and Jackie have been incredible at demystifying this work and sharing a lot of knowledge, um, sharing skills, teaching others how to do this work It's not. Like they're the only ones that can do things. They are really committed to sharing the knowledge, The basically the opposite of power hoarding, um, are very into empowering new leaders to step up, join this work. I have seen them multiple times, you know, people are excited about an idea and they're like, we, the union should do this. And they're like, okay, well, yeah, you're, you're the union. So like, do you want to help out with that? Um, and it's been neat to see people be pulled into this work that haven't been before or people who are just like reinvigorated and re-energized to jump into this work now. Um, and also, very specific support around supporting new leaders of color. Angel and Jackie brought together a group of, um, women of color who are leaders in PAT and we did some work together. I'm a mixed race Asian woman and it was really powerful just to be vulnerable and, um, you know, learn that I'm not the only one that feels like maybe I have imposter syndrome sometimes, um, yeah. So their their trust in members to make decisions, to lead, really making space for different members' passions and skills and for this feeling of like, oh, there's room for everyone here at the table. Like there's it's not there's not a scarcity mindset. Um I really feel that's it that's where we are right now. Chris, do you wanna add on to where you feel we are now?
9: Yeah, I mean, I feel all that <clears throat> so much about elevating new leaders and really just broadening our base, like broadening our base and finding those people that have skills and giving them the support they need to bring them up. And, you know, I'm thinking a lot about, you know, we're obviously about to go out on the picket line unless a a contract is settled or a TA is tentative agreement is reached in the next day or two here. But beyond that, just how much power has been built at PAT? You know, I really hope beyond our membership, we're finding those same people, helping support those, other, those same people and other locals and making this a statewide movement, you know, throughout OEA and AFT and, you know, even outside of education. Um, because, you know, they, we know at our end, they, our team has done a lot of research about the money and how there actually is a lot of money um, in the PPS district. But beyond that, you know, it's like, it's actually not our fault as teachers that money has been misspent or has been hoarded or has been disinvested, you know, and I'm hope, I'm hoping that by doing this in the future, uh, the actual, the investment will come like withdrawing our labor will help that happen. And I think that was part of the vision, you know, of our leadership is knowing that's the way forward, um, is not just, you know, calling, dialing politicians or hanging out with lobbyists, but actually kind of forcing their hand to take action through, uh, collective labor action. So, yeah, I'm super excited about where we're going and uh, I really hope if this strike happens, it'll be kind of a wake up call for Salem our state Capitol and, uh, also for other unions that you can do this, you know, um, Come hang out with us at, at in Portland, you know, or maybe we'll come visit you. And you know, we hopefully we can all be sharing skills and and helping each other out to uh, to to make this happen across the state.
5: I just want to add to that idea that like this is a a larger fight. Um, and even if we do uh, make some real gains and win some of this in our contract, um, the problems of like corporate welfare and lack of revenue, um, are a huge problem, you know, in our, a lot of the research that we've done, um, we've seen how unaffordable, uh, Portland has become. Um, and we've seen the cost of living skyrocketing. We've seen, um, you know, investment in ridiculous, uh, building schemes like the Ritz-Carlton with 1 million to $7 million apartment, you know, like who, who can live there (laughs) and how is that addressing our just like huge, uh, crisis with, um, home homelessness and, uh, housing insecurity. And so really, you know, there's, there's, there's big fish to fry, right? We have, Um, wealthy people and businesses and the business alliance that are really um, need to pay their fair share of taxes. We have, you know, ridiculous uh, loopholes and, you know, crazy corporate tax laws here um, and zero transparency. So we have a lot of things that we can change that will dramatically improve the lives of our um, of everybody in our community. I mean we think about you know some of the things we talked about earlier in the beginning about the social safety net and how you know now we're vying we're all vying for the same pot of money right and yet this is money that's from us, the taxpayers right It's not from corporations. They aren't paying their fair share. So we are having our lives impacted negatively from because we can't pay it all. <laughs> we can't do it all. We need corporations to pay their fair share. And so that's a huge thing that we need to go after. We need to take this collective power and we need to try to um, enact change on a state level. We need to change the kicker. That needs to go to, you know, education, other social services. We have a crisis with mental health in this state, one of the worst states to be mentally ill in the country. Um, We have a police department that the justice department has, you know, uh, come down on a couple of times now for how they uh, have disproportionate force against um, people in mental health crisis. So, these problems are not going to be fixed by this contract right These are bigger uh, bigger systemic issues that need to be addressed and but what I think we're seeing is our collective power and the kinds of relationships and connections we're building with other unions and seeing our that we, have way more in common in our fight for what we need and what's going to make society a place where everybody can thrive, you know, a place that isn't the scarcity mindset. So I I just feel like we, we have built a lot and we can continue to build and continue to build coalitions with people and fight for all the gains that we know um, everybody deserves housing, healthcare. um, and living wages, and on and on and on.
9: Well said, Rachel. Um, yeah, I mean that kind of sums it up right there. Like that's what we're fighting for, you know, for our for our students. But they're they're going to be adults one day, and I don't I don't think we should really stop fighting for them when they leave the school. So, yeah. Do y'all, Tiffany? Do you have any final thoughts before we take off here?
8: Now, the only thing I can think about is just how excited I am that we are in this together, I'm in this with you two, and just you know the the whole structure of this of bargaining in this way and organizing this way is that we're bargaining for the common good, we're organizing for the common good, and that it's not this just this transactional thing that's going to be done after a contract is ratified. Um, but that it's something like we are working on transformative change that is going to keep going. So I who's ready for the best contract this city has ever seen for teachers?
5: I'm ready.
9: <sighs> Let's do it. I'm ready. I'll, I'll see y'all on the picket line. All yeah,
5: right. you will. See you there. Bye.
9: <laughs> Bye. Bye.
5: here today while you're
3: strike ready Uh, absolutely Uh, I want safe schools for our kids I want them to have classrooms that are not 30 plus students in a classroom with a teacher who can't afford to live in their community I remember the thrill of seeing my teachers in the wild when I was a kid right you see them in the store you see them on the street our our kids don't have that thrill because our teachers can't afford to live in the communities and they teach I want our schools to be vermin-free. Is that so much to ask? It shouldn't be, but evidently it is. I want our kids to not boil in the summer and freeze in the winter. I want them to be comfortable and they be in classes that are fully staffed, have all the mental health supports they need to grow up to be the wonderful Portlanders that we know they're gonna be.
4: So why are you out here ready to strike? We need safe schools. We're we're here for the kids. I want to do the best I can to meet their needs and our caseloads are unfeasible. Like what the district is asking from us, it's not okay. I don't have enough plan time. I don't have enough resources. It's not safe. I'm exhausted and I just I want the best for our students. They deserve us, you know, to be ready. They deserve resources. They show up every day. We also need to show up every day ready to serve them. It's
5: two two two
0: I'm here to strike because our elementary schools and middle schools are
4: overcrowded. There should not be 33 kids in a kindergarten or first grade class, ever. And it's just across the board what's happening in our district, and it's unacceptable.